Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. On this week's podcast, I talk to Dan Higgins, recently appointed as the lead manager of Majedi Investments, the family-backed global investment trust, which is seeking to attract new shareholders for the differentiated, quote, liquid endowment strategy, which it adopted a year ago. And before that, I shall be talking also to Prashant Kemka, who's the investment manager of Ashoka India, ticker AIE, the runaway best performer of the trusts which are capitalizing on the strong recent performance of the Indian stock market. Looking ahead, I will be joining up with Simon Elliott, my original co-host, to mark the 200th episode of the podcast in a few weeks' time, when we will be talking about how the investment trust world looks now compared to where it was when we started doing the podcast back in April 2020. To say it's been a turbulent time would be, I think, a mild understatement, but it's, of course, also the reason why there continues to be no shortage of things to discuss every week here on the podcast. I do hope you will join us for that episode. It was another quietish but positive week in the equity markets with the S&P 500 up 1.3%, the Nasdaq a little more than that, the Nikkei in Japan was up 2%, and the first time for some time, is this an omen, the Chinese equities were in positive form, leading the pack of the leading markets with a gain of more than 3% on the week. It was, however, not such a good week for the UK equity market with the Orsha index up around half a percentage point, so lagging some of the other major markets. And the Investment Trust Index performed in a similar way, up around half a percent, despite some widening of the average discount to a little over 16%. Most of that concentrated in the infrastructure and renewable energy sectors, property also affected by higher than expected bond yields. Indeed, bond yields are up again this week, both in the US and here in the UK, where a little over half the number of gilts that are in issue traded down by more than 1%, and some two-thirds of them now are down by more than 4% year-to-day in price terms. Oil prices, meanwhile, edged higher, while gold continues to trade around the $2,000 an ounce mark. Turning to the news from the Investment Trust universe, it was also a fairly quiet week. Plenty of quarterly updates from a range of alternative asset trusts, many of them reporting modest NAV declines for the fourth quarter of last year in the face of higher bond yields and weaker power prices for the renewables. But there was only one significant results announcement, and that came from Invesco Select, the interesting multi-share class trust, which is in the process of consolidating its four share classes, all of which pursue a different strategy, into a single global mandate. All four share classes produced positive returns in the six months to the end of November, between 25 and 8.5%, roughly speaking, uh, with the global class performing the best of the four. Among other news, we learnt that Invesco Bond Income Plus, ticker BIPS, or BIPS, had raised £13.5 million, just uh, shy of its £50 million target, in its recently announced placing. That shareholders in Hypnosis Songs, ticker Song, have approved the payment of an incentive fee of up to $20 million to any bidder for the company's assets. And that the planned wind-up of Digital 9 infrastructure may be delayed by regulators reviewing the sale of its largest asset, Vern Global. 
Digital Nine was the week's worst performer in share price terms on that news. While at the other end of the scale, on a more positive note, shares in Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE, were up some 10% or so after the US-based energy investment company announced a tender offer at a significant premium to its current share price. As always, you can find a summary of all the main announcements from the Investment Trust universe and the biggest movers of the week in share price, NAV and discount terms, together with our new weekly email to subscribers, our latest trust profile. The latest one features Schroeder UK Midcap, ticker SCP, and the first entries of a new list of my favourite investment funds. This is in response to a subscriber request. All of these things you can find by becoming a subscriber to the Moneymaker Circle, our subscription offering. Find out more about that by going to the website money-makers.co. I had a chance this week to catch up with Prashant Kemka, who is the advisor to the Ashoka India Equity Trust, which has been listed on the London market since 2018. Before that, Prashant, you spent a few years working at Goldman Sachs and uh, managing an Indian fund there. Tell us first off about your background and how you came to launch the Ashoka India Equity Trust back in 2018. Thank you, Jonathan, first of all, for having me here to talk to you. Prior to Vito Capital, which is what I founded in 2017, which was a year prior to the launch of Ashoka India Equity, but for 17 years, I worked with Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Initially, I started in their U.S. growth equity team in 2000, where I was made senior PM on the investment committee uh, when I left in 06 to move to India to start their asset management business. And then till 2017, I was leading the India business and along the way was also made CI of the global emerging markets in 2013. And then finally, as I said, in mid-17, decided to start White Oak Capital. So how would you describe your style as an investment manager? It's a very bottom-up stock selection-based approach. The idea is to generate the highest return compared to anyone else in the peer group for our clients. So to do that, we brought together, in my biased view, the most talented group of stock pickers on the team. I think of investing as a form of sport. And you can have the best philosophy, plan, vision, strategy, what have you. But on the ground, when playing the game, you need the right team to execute. And my strength, first and foremost, lies in identifying strong team members for the team, bringing them on the team and keeping them highly motivated at all times to generate strong alpha time and again. So we have a very strong, talented investment team which scours the market for opportunities across large, mid, and small. Because inefficiencies are higher in mid and small, we have higher allocation in mid and small caps. As of today, in the trust, about 60% is in small and mid. That may range between 40 to 60%, but as of today, about 60% in small and mid. And, And over time, we have a long track record of generating alpha in each segment of the market, large, mid, or small, but particularly mid and small have been very rewarding as it is more inefficient segment of the market. So in terms of as a stock picker, would you uh, characterize yourself as being a growth investor or a value investor or or some other combination? What words would you use to describe the way you approach it? To try to stay away from characterization, because otherwise it boxes people's mindset. Even on the investment team, we may fall prey to boxing ourselves to a certain style. We want to keep our opportunity set as broad and wide as possible. Having said that, There are certain attributes that we look for in a business. 
First of all, our philosophy simply stated is that outsized returns are earned over time by investing in great businesses at attractive valuations. Now, that's something that everyone would say. It's a motherhood and apple pie kind of statement. So the devil lies in details. What distinguishes a team is the consistent application of our investment philosophy day in, day out. So what constitutes a great business to the team is one that has three attributes, if I were to highlight. Superior returns on incremental capital, scalable business, and strong management, both in terms of execution and governance. Here, these three fundamental attributes are actually, if you think about it, born out of the fundamental value equation, which is that value of any business is present value of future cash flows. To generate a cash flow, a business must have superior returns on incremental capital compared to cost of capital, else there's no sustainability to cash flow. Uh, Scalability, which is the second point I mentioned, is all about the growth of those cash flows. And then when you have the potential for the first and second, you need strong execution DNA at the organization to deliver on those. And above all, or I would say first and foremost, you need adequate governance DNA at the firm so that the cash flows would be shared with minority shareholders in fair proportion and not siphoned off or diverted to the benefit of controlling shareholder. In which case, it may be a great business, but only for controlling shareholder, not for us minority shareholders. And in such case, the best way to make money is by avoiding them. And the team has done an outstanding job at avoiding governance disasters over time. So you've been running the Ashoka India Equity Trust since uh, 2018. And then since then, of course, it's performed very well. It's up around 140% or something over that period, which is an annualized return of around 17% per annum, which is very impressive, admittedly in a very strong market. Uh, Perhaps we should just go back a step and briefly summarize for us the reason why one should be thinking about investing in India. Obviously, a very dynamic economy it's becoming, particularly in the last few years, lots of growth and so on. But give us the bare bones of the story behind why anybody sitting in the UK should be thinking about investing in the Indian stock market. So, you know, thank you, Jonathan, first of all, on your compliments and performance. Talking about India, I've always maintained over not just my professional fund management career, managing India, let's say, over the last 17 years, but even decades prior, since I've been personally investing in equities since now 38 years, since 1985, that the most important or most compelling reason to invest in India is the opportunity to generate alpha because it is an alpha-rich market. And that is the real differentiation compared to other markets. Ex ante, I've never believed that Indian market, or I've never had, let's say, strong reason or justification to claim that Indian markets would outperform other markets, other emerging markets or other developed markets. The fact that it has done over the last 10, 20 years and all is just a historical fact. Going forward, if you ask me even where we stand today, my view would be Indian markets over time should deliver returns that are more or less in line with any other developed or emerging market of, let's say, mid to high single digits in dollar terms. But what truly differentiates the Indian market is its high alpha opportunity, especially, obviously, on average, a manager might earn similar returns as the market. But if you can identify a good manager, there is potential in Indian equity market to generate substantially higher returns. The same is not the case, for example, in US. It's such an efficient market that the best of the managers, a top decile manager might earn just 1% or 2% at most above the market benchmark. Uh, But in India, the inefficiencies are such that a top decile manager can earn a lot higher 
several percentage points or as much as the market return, alpha can be higher than the market return uh, given the alpha potential. So that's the primary reason. Now, there are always, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective, especially when markets done well, it's very easy to paint a very positive picture about the market. And that's what I'm going to do now, which is a consistent story that I've said for the last 17 years. The long-term case for Indian equities, if I were to put it in four points, one, India is going through a once-in-an-era economic transformation. It started in early 90s when the then finance minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, under the leadership of then Prime Minister P.V. Narsimha Rao, liberalized the Indian economy, opened it to greater private participation and foreign participation. Until then, from 1947, which was when we got independence, till 91, it was a version of Soviet-style centralized planning, which didn't work. So from 91 onwards, the economic growth has accelerated as abundance of opportunities were opened up to the entrepreneurs in India as well as foreign players to capture. Second, India is a very domestic-driven growth opportunity. Unlike a lot of the Asian economies, which are heavily dependent on the US or Europe or rest of the world, India's growth is more domestically driven. In some sense, it is more resilient and insulated from global upheavals. Now, first and second point, I'd like to say these are more about storytelling. They don't necessarily add a lot of value. You can find other countries which possess some variants of this point number one and two. China, you can argue, has grown very rapidly over the last 30 years, hasn't really helped return generation. So the last two points that I'm going to mention are particularly important. Point number three is that corporate sector in India is very diverse much more so than most of the emerging markets. And more importantly than diverse, it is entrepreneurially driven capital allocation in Indian corporate market. It's not a top-down centralized authoritarian, which is very true in authoritarian regimes mostly, where there is a government-driven capital allocation, either by virtue of government companies or influenced by government authorities. India is a truly bottom-up, entrepreneurially driven capital allocation. So think about it as as the opportunity set is very abundant and capital is fairly scarce because unlike in Europe, let's say particularly in Europe where we've had centuries of wealth creation and wealth accumulation, which would go after any opportunity that presents itself in India, that accumulation over generations or centuries hasn't had time to take place. And yet opportunities have been unleashed since 91. So scarce capital allocated by entrepreneurs results in superior returns on that invested capital in a diverse set of corporate opportunities. That's the third point. Fourth point, very crucially, which I've been saying, talking about for the last 17 years, but only last couple of years, its importance has been you know, more appreciated, I would say, is India is a fairly mature democracy. So the institutional infrastructure in India is very well-developed, similar to that of a well-developed democracy in the West. So investors have often criticized, for as long as I can remember, India's poor physical infrastructure and often asked whether the poor infrastructure could be a hindrance to growth. My retort would always be poor physical infrastructure is an opportunity as long as it's changing in the right direction, which it has been for the last 30 plus years. What is very crucial in terms of infrastructure is a soft infrastructure, 
which amongst emerging markets, if you see in particular, very few countries, you can say that the democracy is vibrant, as mature as in India. It leads to well-established institutions such as the judiciary, such as the election commission, the central bank, and so on, where there's separation of power from the government and these institutions. And very crucially, there is in a democratic environment, you know, strong property rights. And that I often say is the best thing India inherited from the British is the rule of common law that upholds contractual and property rights the way it does in, let's say, UK or elsewhere in the Commonwealth or developed world construct. That is something that is missing in authoritarian regimes, at least to the extent that it is prevalent in democratic regimes. Because in authoritarian regimes, the supreme leader is the law unto herself or himself. Whereas in India, as one example, people often used to complain that in China, the Three Gorges Dam was built, displacing millions of people without any problem in record time. Whereas in India, to build a highway, a small farmer can obstruct and withhold progress by suing the government for months or years. My retort again would be that that should in fact give confidence to investors, foreign investors in particular, that in a country like India, where even small farmers can sue the government, that means it's possible that foreign investors might also have strong property rights. As against another country, which may not even respect their own farmers' rights, how can you count upon that country's system to respect foreign investors if you won't respect your own farmers' rights. So those are the four points. Once again, once in India, transformation of the economy. Second, domestically driven growth. Third, diverse corporate universe with entrepreneurially driven capital allocation. And very importantly, rule of law in terms of respecting property rights that comes with a robust, well-established institutional framework as part of a well-developed democracy. But presumably also, though, part of your case is that what hasn't developed fully is the efficient stock market, if you like. So there are opportunities there. But presumably it is becoming more efficient as more capital comes in and more people realize the attractions of the Indian stock market. So is that going to get harder as we go from here? Absolutely, that is true. It's an evolving mechanism, you know, the efficiency in the market. So mid-80s, when I started, I had to pay 3% transactional costs, 2.5% to the sub-broker who would share it with the broker, part of it, and half a percent of stamp duty, which at that time also I thought extremely high. I actually thought half a percent was extremely high until I learned a few years ago that London, UK still <laughs> charges half a percent. And I'm I still can't get over it. It's shocking to me. It's shocking to us too. Don't worry. (laughs) Well, India has rectified it. It's not called stamp duty, but it's called securities transaction tax. That's in a few basis points, single digit basis points on average, if you take the buy and sell side put together. But transaction costs have collapsed to now, including the taxes, probably 10 basis points on average between buy side and sell side, including brokerage and everything. So look at the efficiency. And that kind of represents how the velocity of trading has also increased from 3% to a few basis points. So 90s were more efficient than the 80s with the advent of internet and with the opening of the economy. Early Till early 90s, there was only one mutual fund company owned by the government. You can't expect efficiency 
from a government-owned uh, mutual fund company. In the early 90s, it was allowed for private participation as well as foreign private participation. That also led to the birth of sell-side. There was no sell-side in the 80s. It was only in mid-90s when sell-side reports started coming up. And then the 2000 brick phenomenon, 2003 to 2007, brought extraordinary interest in the Indian markets from investors around the world. And with that, efficiency further increased. And then the last decade, particularly since the Modi government has seen increasing interest in the Indian market, not only from foreign investors, but domestic participation has multiplied as well, even though at a very small level compared to developed world. But all in all, Indian equity markets, the institutionalized asset management business is only 30 years old. I am one of the oldest serving CIOs in the Indian equity market. Yeah. Whereas in the West, several generations have passed and passed their wisdom and made the markets a lot more efficient. So I often joke that when clients ask me about passive funds, whether they're a threat to active money management in India, I said, that's my great grandkids problem, not for my generation in India. <laughs> okay. So looking around there, there's still therefore plenty of opportunities you see. Now, what a lot of people obviously say when they talk about the Indian stock market is that it's very expensive. In other words, if you look at the PE ratios, for example, or whatever metric you look at, it does at least appear to be expensive compared to many other markets. So does that make your task uh, easier or harder? Yeah. So I'm glad you used the word expensive rather than overvalued. It's like, you know, let me take an example for British product. Well, I'm quite proud that it's now owned by Tata Group, but Land Rover or Range Rover. Range Rover is an expensive car, but would you say it is overvalued? I don't know. I think they make a fantastic product and there's a long waiting line to buy that because it's worth the price. On the other hand, I won't name any particular maker of cars now, but there could be the various cheaper cars, but they may not be of the same quality or stack up anywhere close. And, and hence, they might be available for a fraction of a price. To give another example from the market itself, look, anywhere in the world, in any market, let's take UK market, though I'm not sure I'll be able to give the right examples for everything, but there will be certain companies within the same sector that would trade at vastly different multiples. I don't know where AstraZeneca trades, but let's assume AstraZeneca, which is a very finely governed company, trades at maybe 20 multiple or something. I'm sure within the pharmaceutical sector, you might be able to find several other companies which trade at low double digit or even single digit multiples compared to AstraZeneca, which might trade at more than twice the multiple. And oftentimes, it's not just the growth prospects that are different for between Astra and those other companies. In fact, more often, in my view, the number one reason for different multiples is the governance between two companies. So if Astra is considered a well-governed company, it would trade at a far higher multiple than other companies where governance leaves a lot of room for improvement. Yeah? Even many a times, poorly governed companies, despite having far higher growth prospects, some of them, might trade at a fraction of a multiple of a slow-growing but very robust, well-governed company. So when you think of India, it's not only one of the fastest-growing corporate earnings. So I'm not just talking about GDP growth, but if you look at corporate earnings rule, because ultimately when you're buying, you're not buying GDP, you're buying the corporate cash flows that underlie the corporate earnings. So not only has India delivered and expected to deliver one of the fastest growth of corporate earnings, but from a governance perspective, it is my contention 
notwithstanding any stories that come from time to time and those are real stories don't get me wrong but on aggregate basis the governance is far superior compared to any other em market i would say and remember what i talked about property rights that's very crucial now what is equity ownership if you buy equities in a country be it russia china korea india what you are buying is basically a contractual right that gives you right to cash flows of the underlying companies into perpetuity a contractual right is valuable if it is enforceable and higher the degree of enforceability the more valuable is that right the reason why people pay millions of dollars or millions of pounds to buy a property in london is because people are completely comfortable with the enforceability of property rights if you have a piece of paper that you own a piece of property in london then that would belong to you and it will be upheld in courts so those property rights are in my view the key reason why and its form of governance and it's why i believe the indian equities do trade at a premium as do democratic markets we have done a lot of work on this but markets in democratic countries have always traded at a substantial premium sometimes 100 to 200% premium on average compared to markets in authoritarian regimes because in authoritarian regimes property rights are weak all properties basically belong to the authoritarian ruler it's only a mirage that you have property rights in a authoritarian country or can be a mirage as it turned out to be the case in early 22 after the russia ukraine war Well, some democratic countries, such as uh, the UK, don't seem to be trading on quite the same premium as you are in India. <laughs> well, there are other factors as well, but <laughs> governance is one of the crucial factors. Yes, of course. So I was struck by something in the presentation. You were saying that the macro, in a way, is a, is a risk because there are things that could go wrong at a macro level, which could impact the Indian economy. Obviously, geopolitics is one. Maybe political concerns. We obviously got an election this year in India. and also perhaps risk of social unrest those kind of things is that a fair characterization of the point you were trying to make macro risks are always there the fact is that all known macro risks are already reflected in equity markets at all times in our view adjusted for the probability of those risks so there is a risk of some nuclear war somewhere in the world at any given point in time and and you know there are few wars going on all the time but the probability in markets assessment is very very low but that probabilistic risk in my view is already reflected in market levels everywhere in the world including in india there is a risk that india could have some skirmish or conflict with neighboring countries now the probability of that is less than a low single digit percentage point and that is to that probability already reflected in the market but if any such for example the risk of pandemic always existed in the world but it was so small nobody ever talked about it till it actually happened so until it happens what the markets reflect is the very low fractional probability of such a risk playing out now once the risk becomes an actual event then the market has to readjust itself so at this point in time i'm not trying to suggest that the market is not properly reflecting the macroeconomic risks those risks are well reflected in the market valuation but if any of these low probability risk even were to materialize then obviously the market would have to reflect the actual 
occurrence of that event because at that point it will no longer remain a probability and the risk you mentioned are there there is conflicts going on several places around the world ironically india is actually right now considered a geopolitical safe haven yeah when we talk to corporates fortune 500 corporates from europe from us and elsewhere a lot of whom are at various stages of expanding their operations in india or establishing their operations in india if they're not already here when we ask them why uh, you know this whole china plus one phenomenon that i'm sure you've heard of why india is particularly attractive one of the first things they say is that geopolitically speaking it's a, a safe haven as if you look at obviously europe with what's going on with russia ukraine and then the middle east and then you know there's always worries about china taiwan then the koreas are always at risk i'm not saying there is nothing that relates to india but i don't know ironically first time that i've heard in my lifetime india being regarded by corporates around the world as geopolitical safe and because it's walked this line very finely of uh, maintaining strong and good relations with the west with us with europe as well as with the adversaries yeah so that is one i would like to point out on the other political moving from geopolitical to political risk yes the elections are there in may but uh, given what the outcome of state elections were at the end of november the markets risen 10 to 12% since then i think the market is of the view as are all the political experts and as is the betting market in india illegal as it may be they all seem to be convinced that there's going to be political continuity and policy continuity in the indian market so at least geopolitically and politically it seems very sound economic growth is one of the strongest globally and seems to be picking momentum with the last few data points on the gdp growth and all the macroeconomic indicators like inflation fiscal deficit current account deficit all paint a very stable picture right now jonathan looking at the uh, performance of the investment trust itself you've had some very very good years and then you've had uh, i think one negative year which i think was in 2022 come on talk sensibly about what kind of market conditions your fund will do relatively better than the market or the market itself will be affected what kind of factors relate to uh, no, uh, down here excellent question jonathan 22 was the worst ever year in my career not just in ashok india equity but in my 17 years of managing india money i would say so look as i said we are bottom of stock pickers does not mean we ignore the macro we think of macro as a source of risk or factors as a source of risk having said that given the attributes that we look for in a business superior roic scalability and good execution and governance there are certain factor risks that are part and parcel of that approach and i talked about how we try to maximize alpha by allocating more capital to smid caps so the two long story short in our portfolio construction where our objective is to maximize long term alpha and minimize the volatility of that alpha in the interim the way we seek to achieve that dual objective is by allocating more capital to alpha rich segments of the market and less capital to alpha deficient segments of the market smid caps are alpha rich segment of the market so we allocate more capital there compared to the market benchmark and then we believe not going into the details of why but well governed segments of the market where governance is good those are higher alpha segments of the market not because we believe just like we don't believe smid caps will outperform large cap in the market yeah it's just the alpha opportunity is higher same way we don't believe that poor governance would underperform good governance in the market it's just that the alpha opportunity is higher in better governed companies hence we have an over allocation to better governed companies just like we have over allocation to smid cap companies so these two are the biggest risk factors in our approach 
So in a market environment where large caps outperforms mid caps and poorly governed companies in aggregate outperform well-governed companies, those environments would be headwinds for us. And 2022 happened to be the worst year in history for particularly poor governance and large caps outperformed mid caps, not by a huge magnitude, but they did outperform. But poorly governed segments of the market vastly in an almost unprecedented manner outperformed the better governed segments of the market. We can go into how we define poor governance and good governance, whichever way you define you will find the answer to be the same. I mean, look at ESG. If you were to look at third-party data, MSCI, we've looked at MSCI ESG ratings. And when you saw the triple C rated or below companies on MSCI ESG governance, outperformed A rated and above by something like 20 plus percentage points. Yeah, or somewhere around that. And on every other objective or subjective assessment of governance, you'll find that to be the case. So given what I talked about governance, and our bias towards stronger governance, 22 was a brutal year. There's no other year in the past where poor governance has outperformed good governance as strongly. Alongside SMID caps underperforming large caps, 22 was a unique year when SMID caps were underperformed while poor governance vastly outperformed good governance. So you would say that those kind of conditions, they're not the norm. They only come around once in a while, you would hope anyway. Yeah, I would have said, if you asked me three years ago, I would have said Six Sigma even. But having seen it once in 17 years, you can't call it Six Sigma. But it has occurred once in 17 years. And so we are more prepared next time, is how I feel. Looking ahead then for the trust, what do you see as the outlook from here? Can you say you're going to sustain 17% per annum compound? I wish, but anyone who says that you should discount everything else that the person says. yeah. So no, there are no guarantees in this market. What I would say though is, look, I've never said to investors or never pounded the table to say that, oh, this is the best time to invest in India. I think the markets over time would do what they do. It's been a good market relative to EM and developed world over the last 10, 20 years. Let's assume going forward, it would deliver in line. That's most logical assumption to have on an ex ante basis. It would perform in line with other markets and dollar terms deliver 5 to 7%, 6 to 7%, something in that range in terms of returns. What I feel very confident about is our team's ability to generate substantial outperformance. So embedded within the 17% return that you mentioned for the AIE, I believe are somewhere in the vicinity of 700 basis points. And I may be wrong, nobody listening to this should hold me to that because I haven't seen the figure as of today, but somewhere in that vicinity is the alpha or the outperformance. And I feel pretty strongly about our team's ability to outperform the market over time and not just the market, but outperform anyone else in the peer group out there. So again, going to my sports analogy, like cricket's going on right now, it doesn't matter whether you score as a team 400 or 500 or how many runs you score in cricket. What matters is that you score more than the other country. And I know India and England are playing right now. We are one each tied. The third match starts in a few days. I'm hopeful of catching some live action. But what matters is that you score more, and that's what our target is to score higher returns, generate higher returns than anybody else in the pure group. Now, if to your earlier point, if markets become more efficient, maybe alpha would not be as high as in the past, but whatever alpha it takes to beat the pure group is the target for the team. 
Finally then, Prakash, just recently you mentioned your business, White Oak, launched a second investment trust on the London market. You have the distinction, I think, of being the only significant (laughs) IPO of the last two years. And you went ahead with it, even though you only raised a relatively small amount of money. What was your thinking behind that? And what are your hopes for that particular vehicle as well? First and foremost, I'm glad you asked. I want to use this opportunity to profusely thank the investors who made it a successful IPO and allowed it to float. And I profusely thank all the investors who are invested in Ashoka India equity, particularly those who have also invested in the Ashoka emerging markets. And many of those have been invested in the Ashoka India equity from day one, six years ago. And at that time, Jonathan, we raised only 46 million pounds in Ashoka India equity, which was well below the 100 million that we had expected. But thanks to the confidence of the investors and the performance of the team, that Ashoka India equity from 46 million pounds is up to 325 million pounds or more. So it's grown sevenfold. Obviously, as you pointed out earlier, the 100 NAV has gone to 250 or something. So 150% of that increase is the NAV appreciation, performance appreciation. But from 250 to call it 750 because it's gone up seven, seven and a half times. So the assets have also multiplied three times on a rising NAV, on a higher NAV. So even then, what I said was, look, what's most important is to start the performance clock ticking. And in my 20 plus year professional career, more than 25 years, what I've seen time and again, one fundamental truth, regardless of how inefficient our industry is, but if you generate performance, if you deliver performance to investors, investors would note, take notice and put confidence in you. Sometimes it takes a little longer, sometimes it's sooner. And so most important is to start the performance clock ticking. And that's what we've done with the AWM or Ashoka Vito Emerging Markets Trust. If the team delivers as we expect them to, I'm quite confident that investors would repose their trust in the team. That was Prashant Kemka, the advisor to the Ashoka India Equity Trust, talking to me earlier this week. So I mentioned a little while ago that I was interested in, always interested in investment trusts where there's been a change of manager and a new approach, which hasn't been seen elsewhere in the investment trust universe, or at least not in the precise form, takes place. And so I was keen to have a conversation with Dan Higgins, who is a partner at Marylebone Partners, which is a boutique investment firm, who's recently, about a year ago, took over the management of Majedi Investments, which itself is an interesting vehicle, has a market cap around 110 million, I think and uh, where there is a large family shareholding. The Barlow family own a significant chunk. I'll talk about that in a second. So perhaps we could kick off, Dan, by you just explaining how it was that you came to take the management contract for this particular investment trust, and then we'll talk about what you're trying to do there and what are the particular objectives this trust has. It was, it was a long time coming. We as a firm have been around for just over 10 years, and on our day one business plan on the back of the proverbial envelope, we always had the intention to manage money within the investment trust format. I'd done it before in a prior role and we understood the attractions of the format and always felt it suited our particular approach very well, which no doubt we'll come on to in a second. And we'd actually considered trying to raise money for a de novo investment trust about a year before and had taken soundings from a lot of investors and then Market events really made it impractical for us to raise new money. And in the meantime, we were very fortunate because the board of 
Majedi, which is an investment trust that has been around since 1985, I believe. The board of Majedi decided it was time to find a, a new manager. There had been an ownership change of the incumbent manager. And the board concluded that A, it was time for a fresh approach, and B, that for an investment trust to be viable and attractive in today's markets, it had to be offering shareholders something that, frankly, they couldn't get elsewhere. And I think over the last 10, 15 years, a lot of the investment strategies that previously had only been accessible through investment trusts have now been um, available in other formats, usage formats, other more liquid formats. And so the board's process, and they ran a robust process around finding a new manager, entailed finding a group who had the same philosophical views and investment principles that Majedi had already had, had to be very long-term Equities had to lie at the heart of the approach. The objective had to be creating wealth in real terms, so after the potential effects of inflation. And there had to be real alignment between the manager and shareholders, but it needed to be able to offer something a bit different. And so we emerged from that process as the new investment manager, and that was announced towards the end of 2022. Almost exactly a year ago, we assumed investment management of the new vehicle and moved pretty quickly to move the portfolio to our way of managing money. You've described the kind of idea behind what the trust was looking for, the board was looking for. So what is it that you do that makes it uh, different and suitable for an investment trust structure? So we describe our approach as a liquid endowment approach. And what we mean by that, the endowment part, is that we try to evoke the principles and philosophy that many of the elite US academic endowments have executed so successfully for their investment programs over many years. And by that, I mean very long-term, very fundamental, try to avoid getting sucked into macro prognostication or um, trading around short-term narratives and really trying to access differentiated sources of returns, sometimes alternative sources of returns. And so that's very much our way of thinking as well. But unlike a lot of the big university endowments, we don't allocate to really liquid strategies. So you will tend to find lots of private equity and venture capital and real estate in the the classic endowment portfolios. We're a bit more uh, liquid than that. We think there's plenty of opportunity without needing to lock up money for long periods of time and where, where pricing can be a bit more subjective. So our investment approach, and this is what Maribyrn Partners, my firm, has been doing since inception, it entails three fundamental activities. The first is that we manage an in-house book of public equities. Again, very fundamental, have something of a quality overlay, but ultimately we're trying to capture inefficiencies between the prices at which stocks trade today and the net present value of the future cash flows that will accrue to their owners. And we tend to find different names, non-consensual names in the portfolio. The second part of what we do is we allocate out to a relatively small number of third-party managers who are specialists in structurally inefficient sectors, regions, or have a very pronounced style bias. So they are operating in areas of perennial opportunity that reward specialists over generalists, and we think we know 
some of the best of the best globally, and we're truly global in our approach. So we have a biotech specialist in our portfolio. We have a software specialist. We have a deep value activist manager, and we have a fair amount of exposure today to distressed debt, which we think is a particularly interesting area. And the third part of what we do is what we call special investments. So through the network that my colleagues here and I have built up over more than two decades, we are periodically given the opportunity to invest alongside some of the world's great investors in their highest conviction ideas. And these special investments might take the form of a thematic opportunity. It might be a co-investment in a public equity where a manager is trying to change things or turn things around, or it might be a special purpose vehicle that's designed to capture a particular situational opportunity. And we have three golden rules for these special investments. They must come from a trusted source. We must feel we can make higher returns. We're looking for 20% plus annualized returns. So we're quite ambitious for the special investments in terms of their return profile. And third, we must feel that we can monetize the opportunity within three years or less. So that's the point I made a moment ago about not being super illiquid. And put these things together and we feel you get a portfolio that is full of really differentiated bottom-up return sources, but they each have very differing return drivers. They're not very correlated to one another. And by doing that, you get a certain amount of risk diversification. So you can reduce the probability of capital loss, but leave upside unconstrained. But the absolute key part to it all is access to differentiated ideas. Hence, the investment trust format being very well suited to what we're doing. The endowment model is associated with, as you say, Yale and Harvard and places like that. Yale in particular, Mm. David Svensson is a well-known perhaps pioneer of that approach. And as you said, been very successful over a long period of time in generating higher returns for lower levels of risk for that level of return. Obviously, Investment Trust is a listed vehicle and anybody can buy shares in it by trotting along to the marketplace and buying some shares. But the question is, the structure of the trust is that this family, the Barlow family, has a substantial holding, I think more than 50% of the shares. So essentially, they have their objectives And if you want to get involved in this particular trust, you've got to share those objectives, basically, because they are controlling the award of the management contract. And I think one of the Barlow family is on the board and they're watching what you do and judging what you do. So you have specific objectives, though. Perhaps you could describe those. You don't have a benchmark per se. I think you have an inflation target, which is you're aiming to beat inflation by 4% per year? 4% on an annualized basis. Not every year, but over a five-year period. Absolutely right. So in your long term, and because the Barlow family wants to go on investing, presumably, and supporting all the members of that family for some time. So having described your model, what is it you think that actually convinced them that this is what they should be doing? and why you would be the people to do it. Because, of course, it sounds fine. If I may say so, it all sounds wonderful. But the proof of the pudding is in the eating. What actually do you think has driven them to appoint you, and why should anybody else want to follow this particular approach? So in response, first of all, Jonathan, to comments about the Barlow family, it's absolutely right that shareholders' interests are aligned with theirs. And I should say it's a large and diverse family group, And there's definitely a balance to be struck between capital growth and uh, income. It is a total return objective over inflation. And the dividend is is very important to a lot of shareholders, as is capital growth over time. I should also say that the family themselves, as we are, are ambitious for the trust, that we all want to grow it over time. And I can't speak for the family members, but it is my strong understanding that If by growing it, their shareholding were to be diluted down, that would be absolutely 
fine. We all care about the share price. And by the way, we at Maryland Partners are shareholders too. And the investment trust is now a partner in our company. So there's genuine alignment between uh, all parties here. But yes, I mean, I, I see the family as being very good stewards of capital and holding us to account. So let me ask your question in terms of why they were convinced, what they saw in us that made them feel that we were capable of delivering on the objective. I'd say two or three things. So first of all, we've been doing this for quite a long time. And we had a representative track record that had beaten the stated objective over 10 years we've been around. And we've been in the investment business for quite a long time. So we had some substance to support the decision. The second is they saw, and we were very happy to demonstrate, the types of investments that would feature in the portfolio, which are not only individually capable of delivering inflation-beating returns over time, but in many cases doing materially better than that almost regardless of the market backdrop. And third, I think they and we felt that the market conditions or the, the, the regime, if you like, the market regime had changed sufficiently that it would enable our sort of investing to work at a time when other things maybe wouldn't. You mentioned this is a total return approach. In other words, it's a combination of dividend mm. income and capital appreciation. It's part of the change, the trust has changed its dividend policy, switched to, I think, what we now know as an enhanced income approach, or in the sense that there's a guaranteed payout of, in your case, 3%. Sometimes the places have 4%. 3% yeah. of NAV once every quarter. And therefore, that sort of guarantees the percentage return from dividends, but it doesn't actually guarantee what the dividend will be, because that will depend on what the NAV is. But it is a lower dividend than you had before. So you, if you yeah. like, the family and other shareholders are accepting that the dividend is not going to provide them with all their income needs, probably. It's a 3% return. I think that's fair. I mean, it had to be sustainable dividend and a balance has to be struck between capital growth and income. Historically, a meaningful part of the dividend had been funded by a dividend from the stake in uh, Lion Trust that you mentioned previously. So that was no longer there. But yes, we think a 3% yield, if you like, on NAV is attractive, it's sustainable. And certainly um, at the time that we assumed control, the trust was also at a substantial discount to NAV. So the yield to maturity or the effective yield, if you like, was a little bit higher than that. Right. Okay. Before we move on, then I might just also mention this question about the fees, because obviously the kind of things that you're doing are, as you say, quite specialist in some cases. You're hiring specialist managers who are operating in particular little pools where they hope to add some advantage, but they don't come cheap. And I dare say, I hope you don't come too cheap either, because you have to pay for good people. <laughs> so the cost of investing for a shareholder point of view, I think the OCR is up to about 2% now which is higher than a number of other trusts. So what is the prospects of how that will develop? And how do you, as it were, sort of justify that vis-a-vis -vis the competition? So first of all, I would say costs and fees do matter. I think it's very important that investors know what they are paying and then the investors themselves can make their minds up as to whether they're getting good value for money or not. And I also believe this point about alignment is extremely important, that if we're charging a fee, it should be on market cap, not NAV, it should be on the share price performance, which uh, the board felt was very important. And also that the stake that Majedi, the company has in our partnership, I hope will mitigate some of the costs over time that shareholders should participate in our own success. So let me ask your question. Of the three parts of the portfolio, 20 to 25% of the portfolio is managed in-house. This is the 
direct investments in public equities. So there's no extra layer of fees on that. At 10% of the portfolio, which we expect to grow to 20 in fairly short order, is in the special investments that I mentioned, these eclectic high conviction ideas that we source through our network. And typically, we will pay a low to no management fee on those ideas. There's often some carry, so if they work very well, whoever's brought the idea to us participates, but the management fee, the fixed fee, the known fee on those sorts of investments is very low. So that's 35% of the portfolio, which I expect to grow to 45, 50 in due course. And 60-ish percent of the portfolio today is with external managers. And the fees that those external managers charge will vary. And part of our job is to evaluate whether they are adding sufficient value to be worth paying that extra layer of a fee. So we do a large amount of quantitative work as well as qualitative work to help us work out whether an external manager we've chosen, whether their returns are a function of uh, skill, luck, or just the area in which they happen to operate. So yeah, if you put those three things together, there's probably an extra 60 to 75 basis points of look-through fees one has to have to get access to the external manager part of the portfolio. So having given that transparency, I think it's important to emphasise that this is probably the most active form of active management imaginable. There are literally hundreds of the world's most talented specialist investors making shareholders' capital work hard for them. And in our opinion, it is simply not possible to access truly differentiated return sources, real value-added investments, without being willing to pay an extra layer of fees where they are due. We found that what we do sits very well alongside more generic or passive strategies in a lot of our investors' portfolios that we're giving them access to the stuff that they couldn't find elsewhere and they can capture exposure to markets or other return forms in a very cost-effective way. Is that, out of interest, what the Barlow family does as well? Is this the sum of what they're doing? Or do they actually also do what you're saying and use ETFs and other passive vehicles to provide other kinds of investment exposure? I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I do know that for many of them, it is by far their largest single investment. But genuinely, it's a large family. So each of them, I'm sure, will have their own uh, broader investment programs. But what I'm just saying isn't just true of the family. Since we took over management of the trust, an Oxford college has made a declarable stake, a public stake, several wealth management firms, family offices, high net worth individuals, including a lot of investment people. And although I think we're an important part of their portfolios, I would be very surprised if they did not own other things alongside it. But you see what I'm getting at. I mean, the question is, are you actually positioning yourself as a kind of one-stop shop for people? Or are you actually positioning yourself as saying this is a very useful way to add some uncorrelated returns to what you might be doing with other kinds? I see. I think conceptually, it's a one-stop shop. My own personal wealth is invested exclusively in our portfolios, both Majedi and uh, we have an open-ended fund, which was our original vehicle. But I also think the idiosyncratic and eclectic nature of what we do means it is a highly complementary investment in a portfolio context. It shows low correlation to other investments and the individual investments that comprise our portfolio do not tend to feature elsewhere. I've never seen any of our positions feature in another listed investment trust of which I'm aware. Okay, well, that's certainly an important statement. Just one thing about the objectives, 4% above inflation over a five-year period. 
I'm just interested to push you a little bit on. I mean, obviously, if you're a really long-term investor, you could put 100% in equities. And over time, historically, you would have made 6 or 7% in real terms. So first of all, what has your track record actually with your vehicle so far? What has it been relative to inflation? And secondly, mm. are you actually saying that you're actively controlling the amount of drawdown as well? In other words, you don't want too much volatility in the performance over time. So we just updated the numbers on the historic basis and the representative track record is almost bang on inflation plus four over the last uh, five years. And that's despite obviously a rather difficult period in 2022 for markets. At this particular juncture, we are somewhat sceptical that conventional asset allocation and exposure to markets on a generic basis is going to deliver inflation beating returns. We think the risk premium on equities at an asset class level looks quite low at the moment. But more importantly, we think that the entire market regime has changed over the last two to three years. That interest rates, although it looks as though they're more likely to go down than up from this point forward, touch wood, inflation is coming under control. So we hope that they've peaked, but we do not think we are going back to where we were pre-COVID. Uh, So we expect to see structurally higher interest rates than before. We expect to see ongoing volatility, which may well be caused by geopolitical events as well as economic cycles. We expect to see more variable liquidity conditions than before. And that's really important because it means that there is once again a cost of capital for enterprises. Different companies will be able to finance themselves at different costs. And so you are likely to see much greater divergence between the fortunes of winners and losers within almost every sector, region and asset class. There's going to be a lot more fundamentally driven performance dispersion. We think that argues in favour of trying to deliver inflation beating returns, not by timing markets, not by making dynamic asset allocation, certainly not allocating to strategies whose historic success was a function of leverage or rising markets, but finding idiosyncratic bottom-up return sources, any one of which is capable of delivering returns of at least 8% in absolute terms and potentially in the high teens or 20%. Now, I do not know where inflation will ultimately level off, but I'm pretty confident that if we can deliver blended returns in the 10% plus range, that will end up being an inflation beating outcome. I should also add, there is nothing in our portfolio, not one investment in our portfolio, that is predicated on some version of the future that we know we're unable to predict. Right. But is that a function of where we are today? Because you're saying on the one (coughs) hand that this is a particular change in the market environment, which creates opportunities by not doing what everybody else has been doing for the the past few years. But are you actually saying that you're going to carry on doing that regardless of what the market environment is? If the market environment changed back to something else, would you change what you're doing? No, we only know how to do it one way. So whilst we will not invest in anything based on our ability to predict the future, we do hunt for our ideas in areas where we feel the probability of future outcomes is not reflected in today's prices. To give an example, in the second half of last year, because of largely macro factors, because of concerns about interest rates and bond markets and um, liquidity being pulled from the system, we saw a a once-in-a-generational sell-off in US-listed software sector. 
And it was pretty obvious to us that along with some very low quality companies that had been on completely absurd valuations that had fundamentally unprofitable business models, there were some really fantastic businesses that were um, uh, inherently profitable, proven business models that uh, were on valuations we'd not seen for the best part of a decade. So we proactively looked at the best ways of capturing this and ultimately invested with a, a specialist software manager based in New York, not because we felt that bond yields were going to come down or that markets were going to stabilize, but purely because the, the macro opportunity had given us a really terrific entry point in a fundamental investment. And that's just the way we do it. We don't know how to do it any other way. But it feels to me that the conditions that we believe are now here for some time should play to our strengths. I guess the problem is if you're an outside shareholder, I mean, a lot of this stuff looks a little bit like a black box in the sense that you've got these uh, special investments. You call them Project Uranium or Project Bungalow or things like that. <laughs> on the one hand, don't know quite what they are about. And then you've got your external managers who, as you say, no one's ever heard of because they're only <laughs> available to you. And we can look at the direct investments you have. So it's quite difficult to judge from the outside what it is that you're actually doing and the kind of exposure you're taking. Mm. And if you want to get the discount in, which it has come in already, as I'd be the first to observe, can you do that without having a little bit more people understanding exactly what it is you're doing and where the returns are actually coming from and, and likely to come from? I think your point's very well made. And the short answer is uh, no, we can't expect to earn the trust and confidence of shareholders without them understanding what we're doing, which is why it's really important that we communicate it. Uh, the good news is it's neither complex nor complicated and it's not a black box. And we're really happy to be transparent and explain what we do. So for the avoidance of doubt, we invest in stocks. We allocate out to third-party managers who invest in stocks and sometimes in corporate credit, in bonds and debt instruments issued by companies where we do special investments and they do uh, sometimes have cryptic names because very often when we first invest in them, we are under a non-disclosure investment with whoever's brought the idea to us. Once again, these might be co-investment in a public equity they might be an investment in a credit instrument. We don't apply leverage to the portfolio. We never invest in exotic instruments or derivatives. And we don't invest in anything that is illiquid or hard to value. So first of all, just to reassure, we keep it simple. We think it's differentiated and eclectic, but it is simple and it is certainly not complex. Maybe to back that up, you just mentioned a couple of investments that have the cryptic names. So in the case of Project Uranium, about five, maybe six years ago, we invested with a guy called Mike Alkin, who is based in the US. And I got to know him because in my last firm, we were investors in, in a fund where Mike had been uh, the star analyst, a fund based in Dallas, Texas. And Mike started researching companies in the listed uranium sector in the belief that a lot of them were going to go down a lot in price. And the more work he did on the sector, the more he felt that not only were these companies unlikely to fall much more, but in many cases, he felt they had the potential to appreciate dramatically in price. And around that time, this would have been late 2017, the price of uranium had fallen by perhaps 90%. The price of uranium had fallen dramatically since the Fukushima disaster in Japan to a level that the price of the commodity itself was actually below the the cost of production. And his thesis at the time was that 
to use the old cliche in the commodity industry, the, the cure for low prices is low prices. A lot of companies have gone out of business. The industry needed to show real discipline on the supply side. Ultimately, prices need to rise in order to encourage new investment. And he at that time thought that demand for uranium is going to be flat at best. Fast forward to the present day, and the price of uranium has gone from the low 20s to around $100 a pound. Uh, and that's been driven by production cuts that total 25% of world production, the fact that inventories are much lighter than people thought, and that the demand outlook has actually surpassed people's expectations. So when we backed him in early 2018, we were the anchor investors in a new fund vehicle. We backed him to buy the shares of publicly listed uranium companies and to apply his expertise in the sector and effectiveness as a risk manager to help guide us through a potentially volatile journey. And he's done just that. But this was the investment in publicly listed stocks. So these are not quirky or weird and wacky strategies. They're fun- it's fundamentally investing on a very targeted basis. At some point, though, you've got to realise them, though, have you not? How do you unwind these things, if you like? You're spot on. We need to believe that if we want to, we can exit anything within no more than three years from when we first invest. But in the case of the two situations that I've mentioned to you, I mean, the underlying securities are very liquid. So they are sellable at very short notice. So, yes, we are not locked into things for multi-multi-year periods. So if we just look back then, since you took over at the end of January last year, it's been quite a roller coaster year in a way, because you are just looking at the performance of the shares. They were about 220 in the start of the year at one point. Yeah. They went all the way down to 180-something, and now they're mm. back up at 230. So it didn't start so well, but it's uh, recovered strongly. How do you explain that? And is that going to be sort of typical volatility you'd expect to see? I'd rather think you, you'd say not. I will say not, yes. <laughs> so there's, there's obviously two components to the, the share price of an investment trust. The first is the NAV, the actual value of the underlying portfolio. And even over the short term, it, that is not within our control. But I think that reflects the performance of the investment portfolio, which has been rather steady since we took over. And then in the last quarter of the calendar year, the, the first quarter of the trust new financial year, suddenly sprang to life, was up 10% or so, as um, many of the investments that we'd established earlier in the year, the fundamentals started to come through. The part that is not within our control over the short term, but we are working very hard on over the long term, is the share price, the premium or discount to net asset value, which is obviously a function of, to some extent, market forces. And I haven't got the numbers since February in front of me. When, when the announcement was made that we were the new investment manager, I believe the discount was approaching 30%. That was in uh, October, November of 2022. And as of today, it's around 10. Having been to seven and then back out to the high 20s and now back in again. The widening that took place in September, October of last year was the entire sector went to a big discount. That I think as a result of market concerns, and some issues that affected much larger investment trusts than ours, that there were just, to be blunt, more sellers than buyers. But you did say that the trust and the family and the board are interested in growing the trust if they can, which suggests that you implicitly would like to get back to something close to a, a par or perhaps to take on some other assets from another source. That would be a logical implication of what you just said. Spot on. Okay. The big sort of thing that sticks out in a way is this investment in corporate credit. You mentioned that earlier, in particular Mm. in what we call distressed debt. So why do you think there are opportunities there from a fundamental point of view? You'll say you're not trying to call the market, but obviously Mm. interest rates are relevant to that. So what is the thinking behind having a relatively big position in corporate credit? 
So at a very high level, about two thirds of the portfolio is invested in equity strategies of one sort or another, whether that's our uh, direct investments or through specialist third party managers. And about a third of the portfolio is in credit investments of one sort or another. And the reason we feel so positive about our credit strategies at this juncture is that as a result of rising interest rates and widening credit spreads, it is possible in the right hands to generate a very high probability 8 to 10% total return from parts of the corporate credit market in a way that simply was not the case as recently as 18 months, two years ago. So the yields, the all-in yields on, for example, the US high yield market have gone from four and a bit percent to 10% at times over the last few years, coming a little bit now. So for us, that's a good starting point. As I said, that makes it a good place to look where the probability of future outcomes we do not think are accurately reflected in today's prices. But and this is where the point about the ability to find really differentiated investments becomes so important. Security selection, owning the right corporate credit instruments and avoiding others is going to be absolutely critical. And the reason for that is that you know, we think the economy is slowing, not dramatically, but the economy is slowing down. And many companies have got capital structures that were appropriate for the old regime, but they're not appropriate for the new regime. In other words, good companies with way too much debt on their balance sheet because they borrowed, borrowed, borrowed at times when the cost of debt was much lower than it is today. And many of those companies are facing real challenges because interest rates are higher, the economy is slowing a little bit, and a lot of them have to refinance their own balance sheets over the next two years. And so we think you've got a really nice setup whereby for those experts who can separate the wheat from the chaff, who can find the really good credits and avoid the bad ones, there's an opportunity to earn really safe, high quality total returns of 8 to 10% in the safest parts of a company's capital structure, defensive bonds that uh, have first claim on collateral if something does go wrong. And then probably a bit later on, there'll be a real opportunity in distress debt. And this is a real specialist activity, which entails picking up the pieces of troubled companies after something has already gone wrong. Taking a company that's fallen into difficulty, sometimes is in bankruptcy, buying, again, the senior secured bonds of that company and taking it through a restructuring process. And at the right time in the cycle, that means you can earn tremendous upside with limited downside. And we've seen this many times before. We think it's an area of particular expertise for us. We think we know some of the world's best practitioners in this very specialist area. And we think it sits really well alongside the equity investments in the portfolio. It, for us, that's our source of stability and uncorrelated returns, whereas many of our peers, I think, would use government bonds or other um, fixed income investments to provide that stability. So I guess to wrap this up, I know from our earlier conversation that you've studied economics and you've obviously studied investment for a number of years, but what actually is driving these excess returns that you're hoping to achieve, given the amount of risk involved? Yeah, it's a philosophical question. We believe that markets are not always efficient, that sometimes markets are not very good at digesting new information in real time, and that various factors can create inefficiencies. And I think that the most prominent of those today are behavioral biases, 
people's emotions and you know, volatility really tests your emotions. And the second is the indisputable technical forces that drive prices in markets over shorter periods. I think JP Morgan have gone on the record for saying that only 10% of market participants at any given day are fundamental investors, that nearly 90% of the people who are buying and selling shares are either passive investors, derivatives, levered pod shops, algorithms, and Benjamin Graham, who was Warren Buffett's mentor, I think coined the phrase that in the short term, the market is a voting machine. In the long term, it is a weighing machine. And what he meant by that is over short periods, emotion and technical factors move prices up and down. But ultimately, markets are pretty good at weighing the intrinsic value of enterprises. And we are weighing machine investors. We exist to take advantage of anomalies, inefficiencies caused by short term forces. And so I think that is a structural opportunity but it does require you to be very selective and have the skills that help you to identify the mispricings because by and large, I think markets are pretty efficient as discounting mechanisms. But um, there's always something to do. And because we're in the regime we're in now, I really struggle to remember a time when there's been such a breadth of opportunity. And maybe as a final comment, what I really like about that is it enables you to put together a portfolio of really eclectic and different ideas. You do not need to embrace a particular style bias, the whole kind of debate about value versus growth, for example. I don't think it's necessary to take a view in that debate. You can put together a portfolio of really varied but compelling bottom-up investments, which um, that's what we exist to do. That was Dan Higgins, the uh, new manager of Mergedi Investments, explaining what he and his team do and why it might be appropriate for the times we're in. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.